0: little people uh, near these entrances of places that seem to go underground. Why are these dots all leading to a hollow earth subterranean? And it could just be the mythology. It's very interesting that hollow earth cavernous underground system that seems to translate some kind of wisdom to these different areas of cult-like activity in places where high strangeness and little people and oddness is expected.
1: Dark depths of caverns, mines, and tunnels have always frightened and mystified humans. What lies beneath us, moving unseen? People in the ancient world believed that the dead would spend the afterlife in a subterranean world. The ancient Greeks held the opinion that it was better to spend eternity in the underworld of Hades than to roam the world above as a lost and restless spirit. But for Christians, this underworld was hell the souls of the dead would experience eternal torment and punishment. For other cultures, the underworld remains the dominion of elves, fairies, and dwarves. And in our modern era, belief in the underworld has shifted to include the idea of the hollow earth and breakaway civilizations. A large part of the Pennyroyal mystery is focused not on what we can discover here in Somerset and in the surrounding area above ground. But what lies beneath Pulaski County, in the mines and also the extensive cavern system of Sloan's Valley? And the stories of tunnels beneath the town seemed hardly believable when we began our investigation, but became a reality once we found numerous witnesses and newspaper articles about them. There were indeed tunnels, some of which connected nuclear fallout shelters beneath certain buildings in downtown Somerset. But there were also older tunnels built during the Civil War used as part of the Underground Railroad to deliver slaves to safety in the North. And there were even stranger tunnels that local historians did not record and whose builders were yet to be discovered. Not to mention the recurring motif of tunnels beneath not just Oakwood, but also another sanitarium at the turn of the century where murders had taken place. There was an undeniable undercurrent literally beneath our feet. And it was not limited to the Penny Royal. There were tunnels and subterranean passages and roads that spread out beneath the surface of America like a dark constellation. Were these spaces occupied by creatures or the military or something weirder? And were some of these stories part of a campaign of disinformation designed to deceive and frighten us from traversing into this underworld to expose its mysteries? As we discussed on the last episode, the idea of underground reptilian aliens began to gain popularity in the 1990s after the Benowitz Affair, which also involved the infamous Majestic Twelve Documents hoax. As Greg Bishop explains in Project Beta, the earliest mention of the term MJ-12 surfaced in a 1980 U.S. Air Force teletype message known as the Project Aquarius teletype. U.S. Air Force Office of Special Investigations counterintelligence officer Richard C. Doty handed the teletype off to Benowitz as part of a disinformation campaign to discredit him for having recorded what he believed to be UFO activity over Kirkland Air Force Base, a sensitive military research facility. The Project Aquarius document was a fake prepared by Doty to deceive Benowitz and direct his attention away from projects at Kirkland. The MJ-12 papers were documents discovered in 1984 on a roll of film in the mailbox of television documentary producer Jamie Shandera. Since 1982, Shandera had collaborated with Roswell UFO researcher William Moore. Doty contacted Moore in 1980 and detailed how he was the official representative of a group of military intelligence insiders who were secretly opposed to the cover-up of UFOs. In January 1981, Doty provided Moore with a copy of the Aquarius document that mentioned MJ-12. It's very possible that Moore knew the document was fake, but nonetheless disseminated the story of MJ-12. Moore later claimed that he worked with the Office of Special Investigations and helped them spy on fellow UFO researchers, including Bennewitz. Moore alleged that he was taking part in misinformation campaigns to gain the trust of military officers and to gain access to sensitive files. But odds are that this part of his story is complete bullshit. Moore even admitted that he tried to push Benowitz into yet another mental breakdown by feeding him misinformation and fake documents about aliens. The UFO documents Moore knowingly gave to Benowitz were forged by Doty and other AFOSI agents. Benowitz intercepted what he thought were electronic communications originating from alien spacecraft near Albuquerque and became convinced he'd located a secret alien base under the Archuleta Mesa that he called the Dulce Base. But all of these electronic communications were faked or manufactured by Doty and the AFOSI. According to Benowitz and based on these fake documents provided by Doty and Moore, there was a treaty between aliens and the U.S. government that allowed the Dulcie base to be operated jointly by aliens and the CIA. Treaty violations on the part of the aliens led to a firefight and one of the craziest stories in UFO and alien lore, repeated and pushed by figures like Talavesk and John Rhodes the self-proclaimed alien and reptoid hunter.
2: A lot of these uh, UFO stories are like, uh, there's a template or boilerplate that gets used time and time again and one of those is about this battle with the underground creatures, you know, and in that case it was a cavern that the Daros were inhabiting that <laughs> for some reason uh, Chrisman came across in Burma, but you know later iterations of that story uh, crop up in with the whole Dulce Base mythos we're talking the whole the Dulce uh, papers, which were distributed in the uh, late '80s by Talavesque and John Lear, and these characters that were you know heavily involved in the UFO scene at
1: that time. Yeah, it's UFO hunters, but they have a guy on there. He takes them out, and he is um, he knows John Lear.
2: Yeah, John Rhodes. Yes, yes, mm-hmm. yes yeah, dude. Well, yeah, I met John Rhodes with Tal. So with with Tal Levesque, this was like, uh, it had to be around 2007, yeah. I got an email from somebody claiming that they had worked as a producer on the UFO Hunters episode about underground alien bases and that they were, he, whoever this was, the uh, email handle was this quest I, didn't, I had no idea who this individual was but they were also claimed they were in the uh, process of, of like putting together the concept for another reality uh, you know paranormal reality show called Mysterious Mariposa which is a uh, mountain town not too far from me and so yeah you gotta get a lot of emails from characters you know about how that goes and so you know to find out if it was legit. I contacted Bill Burns with UFO Hunters, and he said, "Yeah, this guy knows things." And so eventually, I learned out learned it was Tal Levesque who had this history in promoting the Dulce based story and a lot of other things through in ufology and uh, a couple decades at least, and uh, became intrigued. I wanted to find out, you know. <laughs> This guy really knew things, because that's what Bill Burns told me. He says, yeah, this guy's legit. He provided information for that episode, and he quote-unquote knows things. Ended up uh, meeting with Tal Levesque and John Rhodes uh, in a chapter called My Breakfast with Tal in uh, Saucer Spooks and Kooks. Both of them claimed, uh, Tal himself claimed, that he had an experience uh, with a reptilian in 1979 in uh, Santa Fe, New Mexico. Bas- basically claimed that if you look on the internet, you can find uh, maps by Tal Levesque uh, from like 1979 or so. I can share some with you where he was doing this deep dive into these... Uh, Connections and this is some kind of uh, kind of James Shelby Downer type stuff. He was uh, connecting reports of uh, entries to underground bases and overlapping those with UFO sightings and cattle mutilations and ancient ruins and these type of things. And he was uh, putting these maps maps together back in the day you know this is like once again the late 70s or so and he uh, according to tells how tell told me the story he had these maps on the wall in his uh, house you know and it had push pins and strings and <laughs> stuff like you know something from uh carrie matheson in the homeland where he was connecting all this stuff and he woke up one night and he saw this uh, reptilian standing <laughs> standing there looking at his map. Holy fuck, what's going on here? And the, when he woke up, the reptilian looked over at him and, uh, you know, saw that, uh, you know, noticed Tal was awake, but then it's kind of unfazed. And the <laughs> reptilian turned back to the map, was examining the map. Tal described this reptilian as translucent glowing and translucent and you actually see a drawing of tal's uh reptoid as he called him in the uh book on uh, my labs it was uh, published by illuminate uh, press like in the 90s and anyway tal was uh, alarmed he picked up an ashtray and threw it at the uh, reptilian and it went right through the reptilian and the reptilian uh, turned around he had a utility belt, you know like I describe it you know like a Batman utility belt it had different devices on it one of the uh, things on it was a button a red button that the reptoid could push and it would disappear go into another dimension whatnot but uh, Tal claimed that this reptilian had a little bump on its forehead that it used to uh, transmit Energy in the form of an orb that shot out of its head, shot into Tal's head, and instantly illuminated, illuminated him, and like uh, increased his intelligence by uh, just imparted uh, a lot of information, increased his intelligence, and Tal had a bunch of different uh, stories about how <laughs> how he used that information, but that's partly how. Tal became interested in uh, the reptilian phenomenon. At the same time, this incident was going on, Tal claims, and I think, you know, a lot of these stories are partly truths and half truths and embellishments or whatever, but during this uh, same time, Tal was working as a security guard. Part of this was guarding entrances to underground bases where he supposedly learned a lot of this information uh, secrets about uh, Dulce base and other underground installations as well. and. and Tal also had a history, once again, going back to Shaver. He was friends with Richard Shaver, and he, uh, with his wife Mary Martin back in the 70s, put out a uh, scene called The Hollow Earth Hassle, which was sharing a lot of these uh, inner-earth kind of Shaver mystery stories in the 1970s. So I think Tal took a lot of that stuff he had learned from Shaver... You know we got into the 1980s and 90s he kind of as you know these UFO stories of reptilians and alien graves became more part of a popular culture culture he melded all this together and helped uh, really uh, promote a lot of these uh, stories that you know talked about reptilians underground bases uh, secret experiments going on shape-shifting interdimensional reptilians you know all of these things into this kind of stirred all this up into a strange kind of uh, stew that in a sense at least from my perspective helped to inform you know, ufology you, you in the uh, late 80s, early 90s, as well as a lot of the stories, once again, that you saw in the X-Files and even afterwards, you know. I don't even know that, you know, was his real name. I tried to check on uh, Talavesque. Thomas Allen Levesque and I haven't had a lot of luck. But he also wrote under the, the name of Jason Bishop Three. And Bishop is uh or Levesque is Bishop in French. <laughs> and I know John Rhodes, that's not his real name either, because Tal told me that
1: is it uh fucking ancient aliens that shows the footage of this guy with three fingers and this well that's
2: that's phil schneider okay okay so
1: this is not the same guy okay
2: and, well and phil schneider basically took the thomas castello story and riffed on it and made it his own oh,
1: that, okay <laughs> when you were saying phil schneider or when you were, when you were saying thomas castello i was thinking phil schneider
2: yeah, well, uh, uh, I mean, Phil Schneider became Tom Ca- castello That's crazy. Or a, a variation. That's why I'm saying. It's like this boilerplate or these various stories that get recycled time and again. You know, during the same period, there was also a story that uh, Bob Lazar repeated. He claimed he saw some briefing documents. Uh, from Area 51, that basically uh, repeated the same story, more or less, that there was a meeting between the humans, uh, the military, and the aliens at uh, Area 51. For some reason, one of the military people discharged a, f- <laughs> a firearm and all hell broke loose, you know, and and so, like, you know, there's a lot of variations on these stories, but they, basically, the the whole uh, Dulce base, uh, Dulce War, Tom Castello story came out of the, like I say, mentioned the Benowitz affair, and he also told me st- there was a show called the Billy Goodman Happening, which I wrote about in the book. It was kind of pre Art Bell, and uh, that's where a lot of these. This was like 1989. And I was I was listening to this stuff on shortwave. I just happenstance came across it, you know back in the day it was when this whole fucking thing started in area 51 with bob lazar and all these people and bill cooper became a somebody showed up on this uh show and tell was telling me one time that he was uh yeah he was with bill cooper when cooper was doing these interviews with uh on the Billy Goodman happening and he uh, they'd get a bunch of uh, pizza and get drunk and uh, Cooper would uh, go off on these rants and he told me that one time, and Cooper would get crazy when he'd get drunk and he uh, told me one time that uh, Cooper had a canary in the cage there and uh, Cooper pulled it out and ripped its head off, which sounds sounds cr- sounds crazy, but then I'm going Recently, I was going through a bunch of uh, Cooper material. Somebody sent me, and there was a picture with uh, Cooper and a canary, his pet canary. Okay, that's weird, but then Tal was also telling me that uh, he appeared on some of these Billy Goodman happenings, and was like, I don't remember that. I used to listen to that show all the time. This was during the whole period where the whole area 51 stuff was going on and they were like there was gatherings out at the little alien which was the restaurant near area 51 everybody would uh, meet there and they'd go out in convoys and so there was this character called yellow fruit that people were talking about and yellow fruit was a code name for uh, the security worker out at uh, area 51. And uh, one episode, Yellow Fruit, uh, was on uh, the Billy Goodman happening with Bill Cooper they were kind of uh, comparing notes. and Yellow uh, Fruit claimed that uh, a lot of this stuff, yeah, there was this underground base there and aliens were uh, kind of managing it. They were the benevolent ones, they were called. And Yellow Fruit also talked about how uh, they, the aliens had introduced some alien animals out into the desert environment around Area 51, so Yellow Fruit was monitoring their activities I can share some of these audio recordings with you and I was saying before how Tal claimed he was on the Billy Goodman happening but I don't, didn't ever remember hearing him on there but then I started listening to some of the old, these old shows and when Yellow Fruit came on I immediately recognized it was Tal Levesque who was playing the role of Yellow Fruit also there was uh, just to kind of confirm that this is what was going on there's also a supposed thomas castello interview that happened in the late 80s and early 90s and Tom Castello, who was also a made-up character, was talking about uh, yellow fruit in one of these interviews. So this is kind of the mind-fucking that was uh, going on with a lot of these players in ufology back, you know, during this period that were promoting the Dulce Base mythos and you know these stories about Area 51. And Tal Tal was like at the center of a lot of this stuff with some of these other characters like John Lear, Bob Lazar, Bill Cooper.
1: Is there any evidence that secret underground military bases actually exist in the U.S.? Author and researcher Richard Sauter has written extensively on deep underground military bases, also known as dumbs. In his book, Underground Bases and Tunnels, What is the Government Trying to Hide? He details documents he and others have uncovered through FOIA requests that describe the construction, operation, and planning of underground military installations and tunnel systems across the U.S. He points to training manuals distributed by the Army Corps of Engineers in the 1950s entitled Design of Underground Installations in Rock as evidence that the military was building survival bunkers for U.S. government and military leaders in case of a nuclear attack. In the early 1980s, Sauter alleged that plans were made to take the bases and tunnel systems even deeper, to 3,500 feet underground, in order to hide and secretly reposition America's nuclear missile arsenal. Sauter believed that the U.S. military, in cooperation with the Ballistic Missile Office at Norton Air Force Base, the Army Corps of Engineers, and a number of private companies secretly built an extensive and deep underground tunnel system hundreds of miles long. Sauter claimed to have interviewed witnesses that had visited facilities operated by the Pentagon. Some of these underground installations were based in Raven Rock, Pennsylvania, Warrington Training Center in Virginia, Kirkland Air Force Base in Albuquerque, New Mexico, Strategic Air Command under Amherst, Massachusetts, Oakville Gray near Napa, California, and the U.S. Navy installation at Sugar Grove, West Virginia, among many, many others. He also referenced the many federal agencies that maintain hidden facilities underground, including nine such facilities operated by the Federal Reserve Banking System. Will Hunt who authored the book, Underground, A Human History of the Worlds Beneath Our Feet, extensively researched the subterranean spaces in the U.S. and around the world. As he explains, there are way more tunnels underground, wherever you are in the United States, than you would imagine. There are just crazy layers of infrastructure, whether they be active or abandoned transportation tunnels, sewer lines, aqueducts, or even military or government infrastructure hidden underground. Wherever you go, there's something under your feet that people don't think about. Considering the sensitive nature of some of these nuclear storage facilities and research installations, it makes sense that the U.S. military would engage intelligence officers to orchestrate misinformation campaigns to prevent curious researchers from poking around. And no doubt, at some point in the past, stories of monsters and Bigfoot were used to scare people away from these sensitive areas, Nowadays, though, such stories would cause folks to come running in droves to catch the monsters on camera. Walter Bosley discussed these same themes in his book Shimmering Light about his father's involvement with Roswell and subterranean UFOs.
0: Basically, in a nutshell, my dad had been telling me the story of Roswell, uh, the popular, you know, basically the popular... A version of it um, since 1974 now that was six years before the first book about Roswell comes out and before it becomes you know, the most popular legend in all of ufology in the story that he tells, he tells that he was briefed, because he was in the Air Force at the time that he was briefed at Wright-Patterson that what crashed at Roswell was a craft from a subterranean civilization that shares this planet with us but wants nothing to do with us generally and um so uh, and and then subsequent events that associated him with why he was briefed on that uh, have him according to his version in a subterranean region in the southwest in arizona and uh, he encounters he and another guy encounter some of the people that live down there because of that story and because of, you know, other research that I had done in things that were popping up. And then, of course, because Jacques Vallée was the uh, first to connect a particular uh, legendary people to, you know, UFO cases. And that's the Tour de Danann and the De or Danan, however you want to pronounce it, the Tuidadi Danan, they go back, you know, they're an ancient Celtic mystery race, and the earliest um, accounts of them have them coming out of the sky. Now, subsequently, because they influenced the clans and the various tribes wherever they went, the people that lean more towards everything, you know, you can explain everything with anthropology, they have reduced... Uh, the Tuatha De, de Danann into just another clan, another race of people, because of their interpretation of certain old Irish records and such. And I addressed that, uh, disc- you know, that discrepancy or whatever duality in in my my works. But what it did was between that and what Jacques Vallée wrote about, and, and what I was seeing in my research. Long story short, I, you know, what I saw was kind of a possible you know, handprint or footprint of the Tua de Danon. And I wondered if this civilization my dad was talking about was, was them.
1: Could there be an alien civilization beneath our feet? Is it possible that UFOs are not from outer space, but instead from inner space, specifically the hollow space within the Earth? One of the earliest stories about a hidden kingdom inside the earth is that of agartha
3: so a lot of the stuff that we were that we were studying connected to uh, old theories about uh civilizations under under the earth and it's just sort of a precursor to the hollow earth theory and uh, one of the things that we kept coming across was agartha and agartha is is this mythical place that exists under it, within the earth it was popularized by a french occultist um and there are several in, uh, entrances throughout the world um there's entrances in all in every continent but in the US one of the main entrances is at Mammoth Cave
1: french occultist joseph alexander st eves developed the term synergy the association of everyone with everyone else into a political philosophy his ideas about this type of government proved influential in politics and the occult. St. Eves used it to refer to what he believed to be the ideal form of government, a perfect form of pluralism and the harmonious society all governments should strive to become. The opposite of anarchy. But the word synarchy has come to mean, especially among French and Spanish speakers, a form of shadow government or deep state where political power effectively rests with a secret elite, in contrast to an oligarchy where the ruling elite can be known by the public. It's in this context of a secret ruling elite that the term "synergy" has had a strange influence on the underworld and subterranean archetype in the history of the paranormal and the strange. Lyndon LaRouche, founder of the LaRouche movement, theorizes that St. Eve's and his synergy kicked off a historical phenomena, wherein groups like the Martinist Order, Vichy France, the Federal Reserve, cartels, and regimes like the government of Nazi Germany were driven by synarchistic ideals that promoted systems controlled by a secret elite. But LaRouche was not the first to propose the idea that there is a shadow government or group of elites controlling the world. And the notion spread through the folklore and popular culture very quickly once it was introduced by authors of fiction looking to increase their book sales. Dr. Raymond Bernard was the first to popularize the theory that flying saucers possibly originate from a civilization deep inside the Earth, hidden from the world. He's credited as the first to combine the hollow Earth theory and UFOs. Later, Ferdinand Osandowski, building on these stories, purportedly spoke with monks and llamas when he escaped Bolshevik Russia by way of Tibet and from these eastern holy men allegedly discovered an ancient secret tradition about a subterranean holy land known as Agartha. He learned that Agartha was ruled by the king of the world who speaks with God as I speak to you. He knows all the forces of the world and reads all the souls of mankind in the great book of their destiny. The probably fictitious Buddhists Believed that Agartha and its enlightened ruler actually existed on the edge of reality in a parallel place. Adolf Hitler supposedly even sent a team of anthropologists to Tibet to find the underground kingdom of Agartha, believing that if he could make contact with the king of the world, he could make a pact to defeat the Allies in World War II. Again, here in the mid 20th century, the synarchy of a secret elite ruling the world this time the occulted king of the world. Agartha is frequently confused with Shambhala, which figures prominently in Varyana Buddhism and Tibetan Kali Chakra teachings, which were revived by Madame Blavatsky and the Theosophical Society in the late 1800s. Blavatsky posited that the secret chiefs from which she was receiving her teachings were located in Shambhala, the capital city of Agartha. A half-century later in 1951, Robert Ernst Dickhoff published Agartha, which combined the concept of synergy and a secret elite with the idea of reptilians. Dickoff described Agartha as an underground kingdom with a capital city named Shambhala and portrayed himself as the Red Lama, with his lamasery located in his New York City bookshop. To add to his credibility, Dickoff invoked the Emerald Tablets, a foundational hermetic and alchemical text from which the phrase, as above, so below, comes. He also claimed to have studied with a Buddhist lama in Asia who told him that the king of the world came from Venus and was originally a reptilian that had since taken human form. Dickoff wrote that these humanoid serpent men from Venus were the original serpents in the Bible who exploited a pre-flood tunnel system in order to infiltrate and capture Atlantis and Lemuria. Survivors of these lost continents supposedly escaped to underground hideouts in Agartha and Rainbow City in Antarctica. Although the serpent men were eventually defeated, they have since infiltrated governments and kingdoms around the world with their powers of mind control, and by replacing such prominent figures as the Queen of England with reptilian impostors. Once again, we can see an underlying synergy of the secret elite controlling the world with an unseen, albeit scaly, hand. If you look at the various literature in the canon of the Hollow Earth and Agartha, you'll see Kentucky at the top of the list of places where an entrance to Agartha is located. And that entrance is somewhere in Mammoth Cave on the western edge of the Pennyroyal. This entrance is spoken of by a wide range of authors and purported witnesses of the subterranean kingdom of Magarta since Mammoth Cave is the largest cavern system in the world with many more miles of tunnels yet to be explored. Maybe that's why there are so many UFO sightings in Kentucky. Maybe they're all flying out of Mammoth Cave. It is true, though, that this area of Kentucky is both near Hopkinsville where the Hopkinsville goblins appeared and also near the Mantell UFO encounter, Fort Knox, and even Fort Campbell, which is the frequent site of UFO sightings. I don't personally believe that there's an entrance to Agartha in Mammoth Cave, but I do believe, like Alan Greenfield, that the cave systems beneath Kentucky are somehow associated with the enormous amount of high strangeness here.
4: can argue that this the high strangeness that is ubiquitous in that area is directly related to the cave system which seems to run you know talk about ley lines and this the cave system runs under there also people have claimed some of the material that I sent you which you may or may not find interesting boring or repetitious are, are people that have variously uh, seen kobolds or gremlins or you know the names are strange little beings in in mines and caves, and also the people that have disappeared. This is stuff right out of Richard Shaver. Yeah, in Arkansas too, which is where Shaver uh, spent his last years digging up these records from pre civilizations, which he would send me and say, can't you see the picture? And I said, yeah, it looks like a priest blessing people. And he said, no, it's a woman feeding birds. I said, whatever.
1: Mammoth Cave isn't the only location in Kentucky with an entrance to the Hollow Earth. There's also the tale of Edidorpa, which details a strange journey into the Earth somewhere near Smithland, Kentucky, in Livingston County, which you might remember is where Alistair Crowley's family immigrated at the turn of the century.
5: My name is Jason Andrews. I'm the host of the Paranormal Patio podcast, and I'm also working on a documentary about an experience that I had in Western Kentucky. Uh, and how it connects to the story of Etta Dorpa and the hollow earth and a mysterious cave entrance in the hills of western Kentucky. So John Uri Lloyd publishes Etta Dorpa in 1895. The book is his first novel. He's actually an uneducated pharmacologist who, along with his brothers, uh, creates this huge pharmacology company, and he's really into alternative medicines for the time, especially having an interest in fungi and a lot of things that would come to later move into the psychedelic movement. Jean Uri Lloyd's an interesting cat, for sure, because it's an uneducated pharmacologist who writes a novel about going to the hollow earth. It's, it's the most bizarre thing, but the basis of the story is there's, it starts off with uh, this this guy, who calls himself Llewellyn Drury, admits that's not his real name, says, you'll never find my name, and uh, he's telling a story about being visited by this mysterious old man in his living room one winter night. The man never says his name and only refers to himself as, I am the man, or I'm the man who did it, or just simply the man who did it. The story that unfolds is that the man who did it has come to Llewellyn Drury to tell his life story for it to be saved for 30 years, and then published. The story roughly goes as follows. The introduction sees I'm the man as a younger man. The name, again, never mentioned. The location never mentioned, although it's described. And the story that he lays out, at least in the beginning, is the story of William Morgan. And you can look into William Morgan pretty deep actually started the first ever third political party in the United States, the anti-Masonic party, due to his alleged kidnapping and potential murder by the Freemasons for exposing their secrets via a book called Illustrations of Masonry. And that's the real story of William Morgan. But in Edadorpa, instead of being killed, I am the man slash William Morgan is taken on a journey from Northern New York, down to Cincinnati, which is actually where John Ure Lloyd lived, and then into Western Kentucky, uh, Smithland, Kentucky, to be exact. And from there, they wind their way through the hills and hollers of Western Kentucky, where the guide who's been accompanying him passes him off to a sightless humanoid with pale skin and water all over him who's just emerged from a hole. In a spring, this guy takes him down into the Hollow Earth where he's taught the secrets of consciousness and the secrets of physical life and the strange prophecies of the end of man on Earth where everyone will soon be living in the Hollow Earth. The book is great. Uh, it's kind of difficult to read. I wouldn't recommend it for newer readers for sure. A lot of occult stuff, a lot of heavy science as uh, John Urie Lloyd, if, if we assume the book is fiction, John Uri Lloyd definitely goes out of his way to throw in the science information that he has in a way of sort of perpetuating the reality of the story. He even offers a few experiments that you can do to prove the things that the guide is telling him. So definitely interesting in that. The story ends with Luell and Drury 30 years later deciding I can't publish this and uh, allegedly giving it to John Uri Lloyd to be published with illustrations by John Augustus Knapp who would later go on to illustrate a lot for Manly P. Hall including a tarot deck that they worked on together which I can't recommend enough.
1: Here's an even stranger connection to Edidorpa, and folks can deny the reality of synchronicities all day long, but strange connections and concentrations of correlations that are properly termed spooky action at a distance absolutely do occur. Case in point, while researching Edidorpa and any connections there might be with the Pennyroyal or Pulaski County, we discovered the story of Ellenetta Harrison who lived in Somerset and authored the very popular book The Stage of Life which was published by the same company that printed the first edition of Etadorpa. A fire broke out in the building where copies of both books were being housed and all copies were destroyed. The books were reprinted and the proceeds from the sale of Harrison's book it turns out were used to fund the construction of a monument to Confederate Brigadier General Felix Zollicoffer who was killed at the Battle of Mill Springs here in Pulaski County when he mistook the Union 4th Kentucky Infantry Regiment for blue-clad Confederates. Zollicoffer rode into their ranks where he was quickly shot by Union Colonel Speed S. Fry. Elinetta Harrison, who lost family at the Battle of Mill Springs, who were serving under the command of General Zollicoffer, built the monument and its park to honor these soldiers. The day we found this research chasing down Etta Dorpa and finding Harrison's The Stage of Life was the very day that rumors were spreading in the community and throughout Pulaski County that Antifa was coming to take down the monument to General Zollicoffer, which prompted a massive group of armed militia members to show up in full combat gear to protect it. It was an insane fucking scene.
3: Yeah, so this is happening like at the same time that they're taking down a lot of Confederate monuments and stuff, and there were all of these rumors swirling that Antifa, some for some reason, Antifa was coming into town to, to do something at this at this monument to Zollicoffer, and it it the rumor just ran wild. There was no foundation for it at all, and it just ended up being you know a whole bunch of local people sitting around with guns trying to protect something that was never even in danger.
1: Lots of anger and lots of guns. But the busloads of Antifa members didn't show up since Antifa isn't an actual organization. It's a collective belief in preventing and combating fascism and racism. Here again in Pulaski County, we witnessed the clash between the forces of Pan and the forces of Apollo. As Dan Dutton frequently likes to say, the Penny Royal in Pulaski County seem to be on the front line in the battle between anti-fascism and the normalization of fascism and racism in America. Another incredibly strange intersection with the Penny Royal mystery is the story of Amy, who contacted Greg Newkirk with an insane story and was featured in Season 2 of Hillier. She detailed in emails and messages to Greg that she lived in Somerset, Kentucky, and had discovered a sinister cult in Pulaski County that was worshipping a green man, or possibly even little green men living in the caverns and tunnels beneath the area. One of her most incredible claims was that she found a cabin in the woods with an elevator that went down into the cavern system below. While her description of what was in the cabin sounded terrifying, blood and chains and other horrible details, it actually turns out that the cabin with the elevator is in fact real. The Amy witness in Hellyer was in the Pulaski County Detention Center at the time Greg spoke with her on charges for allegedly breaking into a cabin. We ended up by sheer coincidence, discovering that the cabin was owned by family members of my neighbors who originally told me the stories of a cult here in Somerset that set this entire investigation into motion. But the cabin isn't at all connected with a cult and doesn't feature any torture implements or cages or chains. It's a quaint cabin that was owned by a nice couple in the 1950s sitting on top of part of the Sloan's Valley cave system. The couple used the cave beneath the cabin as a natural cellar to store food and originally had a spiral staircase down into it. As the couple got older and found it more difficult to use the stairs, they replaced them with a medical lift to get down into their cellar. My neighbors were young boys at the time that they frequently visited the cabin and clearly remember the lift and the part of the cellar wall that opened up into a passage deeper into the Sloan's Valley cave system. Just like the story that Amy told of a group worshipping the Green Man and our discovery that there was in fact a group called the Guadonic Order active here in Pulaski County who honored Sunernos and the Green Man, there's some truth to this part of Amy's story. But again, there's no cult and no underground chamber of horrors. But that doesn't preclude strange things happening beneath the pinner oil. Witnesses in the area near the location of the cabin have reported seeing and being chased by black SUVs. A few witnesses have even mentioned seeing black helicopters patrolling the area. Now, is this some nefarious clandestine group or just the state police looking for marijuana plants? And there are even rumors that the FBI maintains a safe house in the area which might explain the black SUV sightings, there could be a very rational explanation for all of it, and there often is, most of the time. There may even be a rational explanation for the sounds of machinery and the large booms that are reported in that area of Pulaski County and throughout the Pennyroyal. Further east, near Elkhorn City in the Appalachian foothills, the sounds of underground whirring and machinery are frequently reported. And looking into this particular phenomena, one finds that it's not just isolated to this area of the United States. According to an article by Greg Long in Contact E! Magazine entitled Machine-Like Underground Sounds and UFO Phenomena, since the mid-1970s, people in various parts of the country have reported hearing strange rumbling and weird machinery noises coming from beneath the ground. On the Yakima Indian Reservation in Washington, in the 1970s, reported underground machinery noises. The strange noises began on November the 7th, 1972, on Saddest Peak, and were described as sounding like a loaded truck pulling a long hill and never reaching the top, or like several large turbines. By 1978, the turbine sounds were reported at the southern boundary of the reservation. Strange lights and luminous objects were also sighted in conjunction with the strange noises. Reports of similar subterranean machine sounds also appeared in the San Luis Valley in Colorado, Robertson County in Central Texas, Southwestern Pennsylvania, Northwestern New Jersey, the San Gabriel Mountains in California, Pine Bush, New York, as well as Puerto Rico, England, and Italy, and also Kentucky. Are these sounds of underground machinery and the booms and quakes associated with them evidence that the U.S. government is extending its network of underground roads and tunnels, possibly to clandestinely move parts of its nuclear arsenal, or even to expand the shelters constructed for political and military leadership, and the continuity of government in case of disaster or nuclear attack. Is it possible that the sounds we're hearing beneath Pulaski County and the Penny Royal are part of this effort to expand those subterranean spaces and networks? One of the strangest threads in this mystery and our investigation has been the repeated contact from various individuals regarding a secret UFO base beneath the Pennyroyal. We were told by one psychically sensitive witness that in a field off of Highway 39 in the northern part of the county, beyond the community of Woodstock, that there's a hatch which leads down into a secret UFO base. We've had a few other researchers describe a strange hatch and bunker south of Somerset in McCreary County that leads to numerous flights of industrial stairs going down deep down into a flooded tunnel system. No doubt if such installations and networks of tunnels do exist and have existed for decades, tunnels that are retired or shut down would be sealed and flooded as new ones are drilled and diverted. If you'll remember from the first season of the show, we contacted a remote viewer who had posted online about a psychic encounter while viewing the Pennyroyal, and specifically what was beneath Pulaski County that remote viewer described an underground tunnel system beneath an old house and then a psychic attack from what looked like a gray alien that caused them to lose their ability to remote view
6: yeah the first thing i saw was like a a doll of the incredible hulk i think it was and like i didn't even realize that was related until after i'd seen the documentary after i posted about it and someone comes in and goes yo the incredible hulk that's the green man yeah. And I was like, okay, that's kind of wild. <laughs>
1: exactly. Yeah, man. That, I mean, that's
6: right. It's uncanny, you know. Uh. Yeah, it totally felt like someone was watching me. Um, and like right after I finished remote viewing that stuff, I had this vision that I didn't even mention of like a face putting me in a box. And I haven't been able to remote view since I did that. Really. Um, really? Like I get brief abilities too, but it's like nothing like I used to. And it's really weird because I feel like I've been like trapped or something. Like something found me. It's and but it yeah, I definitely that. feel like yeah. there's such a bridge there. Um, to, like, the other side, whatever you want to call it. Um, I saw, yeah, it's really weird. Every time I do it now, all I see is a box sitting in front of me. And when when I was finishing up the Somerset one, it felt like something had kind of pulled me away from Somerset. And I saw a a face that looked like it may have been, like, a gray alien. It may have even been one of the green, green men. I don't know. But, like, as I saw that, I just, like, kind of tried to pull away from it, and I couldn't if that makes sense. Yeah. And all of a sudden I saw a box kind of faded behind it and then the head faded away. And now whenever I try to remove you, I just see this box sitting there. Like every once in a while I can see outlines of things, but it's not a whole picture anymore. It's just a box. It's really weird. Uh, I think the stairs were going up, but I saw what I think was a basement under it that was pitch black. But I may have messed that up because I think that could have also been the caves. But somebody, I think, was being kept there. I have a strong sensation that someone's being kept there. Maybe not now, but at the time that I was viewing it.
1: Finishing up post-production on the Fawn film and restaging Dan Dutton's first opera, The Stone Man, seemed to stir something up at Dan's dandyland farm. Not only was Dan receiving transmissions and messages from somewhere else, but other actors and collaborators in the projects were also receiving what appeared to be psychic impressions or transmissions of some sort. They also reported what can only be described as high strangeness the sounds of rain when no rain fell, cones of silence, flashes of insight, and even the presence of some unseen observer. I spoke with Kevin Newsom and Jessica Yee from Beyond Sight Studios, who were friends and collaborators on these projects, and who had experienced these weird occurrences firsthand. During one such occurrence, Kevin, Jessica, and Pennyroyal co-producer Kyle Cadell were taking part in a meditation experiment while Dan performed the Stone Man on piano in its entirety, when all three suddenly experienced something very strange and very subterranean.
7: As Dan's learning Stone Man again, a couple different times he's, he's played us some parts of it, you know, as practice, number one, and, and also just to see what kind of effect we'd, it'd have on us. And so this was the second time we were doing it. Uh, Right as we began, like I started pretty easily to get in like that, that, you know, just trance-like state, you know, and then it was like there there was a random just idea that popped in my head that was just sort of like someone saying, there's going to be something about the stone man here, so pay attention. And then it was just sort of gone, and I was like, well, that was weird, but I don't don't know, because nothing was really happening yet. So I kind of just brushed it off. And then I started to experience then like just the, the sensation of, of moving down a tunnel, you know, or like a hallway, dark corridor, it means something, just moving in a straight line down this corridor or tunnel. And after a while, like this is this is something that I, I've experienced almost every time I've tried, you know, the Gansfeld experiments or any kind of like serious meditations, I usually always get that sense of going down a tunnel or, or being propelled down a tunnel. So, like, after a while, I started to recognize it, and I started to play with the idea of, of changing it, basically. so like I, I wanted like I wonder what would happen if I turn right. so like I would turn right and then it would just be another tunnel. And then you know, turn left it's just another tunnel, like the idea that no matter which direction or angle you faced and, and branched off on, you were still being propelled down this tunnel. and then I started to to get the idea of well, those tunnels are all leading to the same place, just in, in different ways. And then it was almost like something clicked, and it was like, that's it. And then I started to sort almost zoom out of my vision of being in this tunnel to starting to see all the other tunnels that intersected it in all the different ways. And so it was almost just like this sphere structure, and there were just intricate patterns of tunnels, you know, just being woven at every different angle, just, I mean, it was definitely a pattern, but it was crazy, you know, just to look at. And then it was like, okay, they all are going to lead eventually to the same place. You know, the the idea that the lessons you have to learn, you're eventually going to learn, like all your actions have consequences. So there are so many different branches of tunnel you can you know branch off on, but eventually you're going to get there. And it was like, like, that's it. And then I started to see like at the top of this structure, there was just a single tunnel that was just sort of shooting up. And like, it was almost like I was thrust into, into this tunnel, this energy. Like I could just feel like this really like heavy, just powerful, like bright energy. And it was just like, it was flowing through me or like I was being pushed through it. And then it eventually led off to like, almost like the end of the tunnel where there was just open space. Like it was just, it was really bright, like white, just everywhere. And I started to recognize it as as energy. Like it was some sort of energy and it was basically the energy of everything, like the universe. And then I started to, to notice different like patterns emerging from the energy that I almost immediately understood were different individuals within the energy. And as soon as I had this thought, it was like that's it, and then I noticed all these energies almost like they were gathered around me, and it was like we have to teach you something. Like you have some things you need to learn, and so I, I started to experience just this sensation of, of them teaching me, like moving through my body of how to collect my energy and, or you know, my my power source, my soul, whatever you want to call it, and and harness that and project it, almost you know, like astral projection or, or something. And it was like, that's it. It's like this is how you do it. And like they they explained, tried to walk me through how to do it. And then they were almost like, okay, like go ahead, try it, you know. And so like I tried to do exactly what they said and, and then I harnessed all my energy and, and projected it out. And it was just like I was thrust out into this just openness. It was just I started to see that there was every different moment imaginable just all around me and that I could just go to any one of them I wanted to. But the first thought I had was I want to see the moon. And it was like almost immediately the moon just rose up like to my right and I was seeing it like I was just floating in space looking at the moon. And then I was like I want to see Saturn now. Mainly because my little girl says Saturn really funny and that's just the first thing I thought of. But as soon as I thought of it like I see like almost half the sphere of Saturn like off to my left in the rings again like I'm just floating there and then I, I was trying to think of something else like my next destination basically and there was almost like this this other energy that was sort of pulled me back from it to like bring me back down to the other energies it was almost like you know that's enough like you we got we have to teach you something like you got to understand something here and um Right after that happened and I had that thought, I started to get like these really weird, like eye twitches. Like they, they weren't exactly twitches though, like it felt like pressure on my eyes. And the exact sensation was like someone using your eyes as drums, like a, just a boom, 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 pounding on your eyes. And, and I've never really experienced anything like that before, so it was, it was really weird. It wasn't painful or anything, it was just a weird sensation. And then, like, I started to understand that there was a, a pattern. Like, the the bouncing on my my eyes was some sort of message, some sort of pattern. And my immediate thought was something like Morse code. But like, I knew it, it wasn't Morse code. But that was the you know the first thing my mind could jump to for it. And then it was like, that's it. Like, it's a code. And then, like, once I had that experience, or or like that idea down, I started to see like. In the performance of the Stoneman we're, we're gonna do when we're talking about you know, setting up all the participants in the tents and everything and, and having their, their faces recorded on a Zoom call, that the idea was you need to really, like, really pay attention to especially like the, the eyes, like to see if there's any eye movements in all these different people along you know, the Stoneman mm-hmm. performance. And then the idea would be that there would be some sort of recognizable pattern in all these these eye movements or twitches that then could almost like just a, an embedded message or a code. And we would have to you'll recognize this and be able to use that code for, you know, I don't know if it's exactly what it is, just it was some sort of message, that, some sort of tool there that we could use in some way. Um, and when I had that thought, it was just like a collective, like, yep that's it and then it was just like I was just completely cut off from all of that energy and then I was back and very aware that I was laying in Dan's house listening to him play and it was like oh wow like that was really weird and then it was just a concrete message almost repeating periodically of like don't forget like pay attention don't forget and so the, after that, like I started con- to construct that idea of, of how we could do that, you know, to maybe even recognize some sort of pattern and see what it, we can do with it or, you know. Uh, we had a thought that night as we were discussing it, you know, it was like, it's not Morse code, but what if it was, you know, like binary or something? Because binary is such a big part of all this. So that idea is really intriguing of what we can capture and, and see, like if there's something there.
8: Like as soon as I closed my eyes, it, it pretty much started. And it was just enough to where, it, you know, I felt like it was noticeable, like it was, you know, pretty strange feeling. Um, it's just like a, like a pressure on my eyes. It didn't hurt, it's just like, like a tapping pressure.
4: Like he no, didn't
8: seem but like see, it, you know, when you said deal? about the
9: tubes part of it, the thing I know about that is that in the
2: opera itself, in real time, that section of what happens is uh, is really happens pretty quickly. It gets echoed on in this labyrinth part of it or underground section of it. But Mm -hmm. that happens all in the mummification ritual at the beginning where it's like your portal into the experience that you go through. That's the whole tunnel thing. But for a lot of people, I think for Kyle it involved something else. It was like
9: he said that first his mind was off on like sort of humdrum daily affairs or what. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, he was like listening, but also thinking about something else. And
2: yeah. then after a while, that, he, that stopped, you know, and instead he turned to, yeah. to experience the music. And then he suddenly started having all the kind of fun.
9: I wasn't really prepared, you know, Uh, like I said, I I just kind of was rushed into, didn't know this experiment was happening until a minute or two before it happened. And Dan explained it almost as uh, waking, lucid dreaming. To me, that kind of means the state that you get into, almost a meditative state or a channeling state where you just kind of open yourself up to it. Uh, At least that's the way I thought of it. Afterwards, I thought, you know, uh, with the experience I did have, I thought that mine was more of this being led places, and I would think of lucid dreaming, wicked lucid dreaming as uh, astral projection more, you know, and this was definitely not me in control of what was happening. Dan sits down at his uh, grand piano, Phil sits down at the acoustic guitar, and they start playing the Stone Man opera in its entirety. It's 35, uh, 38 minutes, somewhere in there, long, without stopping. And uh, Kevin and Jessica laid down on a blanket, and I laid down on another blanket, and we all had our eyes closed. And basically, I tried to open myself up to the experience, the channeling, the being led, whatever may happen. In the beginning, it was difficult, to be honest. Uh, I was very much in my head about the museum and personal things going on in my life. But eventually, a, a, a little after 10 or so minutes in, I immediately had the thought of, cave city kentucky and cave city kentucky is where uh famously mammoth cave is but not just mammoth cave it's one of the largest areas of like cave entrances in kentucky there's holes everywhere basically if you know where to look for them that will take you down into areas that connect that it's all part of the mammoth cave system cave city is also the statuary capital of kentucky Most places actually in the southeast will source their concrete statues, like those giant statues or those concrete statues you see out in people's yards. Uh, Most of those get sourced and come through Cave City, Kentucky at some point. When I first start thinking of Cave City, Kentucky, I start thinking of these statuaries. You know, if I was to go there to buy one, I would buy, you know, an Easter Island head. I would buy uh, one of the four-foot-tall Bigfoot statues or something. But that's not really what was... In my mind, and what was in my mind was, you know, giant like human forms, giant concrete men, you know, stone men, which is uh, funny enough, exactly what, you know, I didn't make that connection till much later, you know, until recounting the story that, like, that's literally like you couldn't get more literal of what we were experimenting on was the idea of the stone man. And here I am focusing on statuaries and giant concrete statues of humanoid forms. These are popping in my head every once in a while, and it's not like I'm walking around a statuary lot. It's just one of these would pop up in front of my vision and like allow me to observe it for a little bit, and then it would disappear, and another statue would kind of you know zoop right into my field of vision. Uh, and eventually, after a few minutes of this we, I say we, I don't, I didn't feel alone in this stuff. We journey somewhere to where it was a large field and we overlook a giant hole, basically a cave entrance. And it's definitely not, it definitely wouldn't be the mammoth cave entrance. It's one that uh, wasn't a tourist attraction. You'd have to rappel down there to gain entrance into it and everything. Later, when I'm telling Dan, uh, I recounted uh, this part specifically about looking down these holes uh, in the ground and he goes, just without skipping a beat, like it was completely natural, he's like, oh yeah, absolutely, that's uh, where the cave voices start talking to uh, the protagonist, or whatever, and I'm like, what? And he's like, yeah, of course that's what you saw, you know, like, very matter of fact, the experiment was a success, that I saw these, or I had visions of caves while he was singing these words that are very natural based, but are not not saying, hey, I'm in a cave, they don't mention caves, they don't mention Uh, holes in the ground they don't mention he doesn't have any sort of effect on his voice that makes it sound like he's in a hole it's just with the visualization that he has that is not something we were using for this experiment uh, this is where the cave voices are calling to the protagonist in this exact moment that I'm having these cave visions you know there's definitely a journey element to my vision where again we I don't know what we means here but it definitely wasn't just me um, go to several different like paths through the woods and different cave entrances and we don't really go into caves we just look into them you know and almost you know just stare into the abyss you know and Near the end of the song, I'd say probably five minutes before it was over, I just kind of zapped back to Somerset, and I was back in myself, and I was unable to, you know, have any more visions or anything, so I just kind of laid there peacefully uh, until the song was over. I went ahead and told Dan all of these things, and he's, like I said, he very much didn't seem very excited by these ideas, but seemed like it was what he wanted to hear, you know? Like, it was a successful experiment. I did pick up on what he wanted me to pick up on, or whatever was supposed to be picked up on. I don't even think it was his personal want, you know?
1: Derry and Kyle and I often find ourselves talking a lot about rabbit holes. We're running down part of some research and suddenly pursue a digression only to fall into a whole new discovery of something we weren't looking for, but that's often related magically to what we were trying to find. And just as quickly, we start falling again into an entirely different rabbit hole. Another part of the journey, and hopefully back out again to where we started with a whole new perspective in tow. I love rabbit holes. They're part of the method and the madness to all of this research. They feel magical because they're so random and unpredictable and unexpected. But when and why did we start using the phrase rabbit hole as a metaphor for such magical digressions? As Catherine Schulz, author of Lost and Found, explains in her article, The Rabbit Hole, Rabbit Hole, it's generally accepted that the first time the phrase down the rabbit hole appeared was in Lewis Carroll's 1865 work, alice's adventures in wonderland in that story alice falls down the rabbit hole chasing the white rabbit and finds herself in an absurd psychedelic world called wonderland before the advent of the internet you could go to the library to look for some morsel of knowledge some answer to a question but it took time you might encounter something interesting but cross-referencing it took additional time all human knowledge wasn't at your fingertips You couldn't hop from where you started quickly to something else and back again, and there was a limit to what sources you had access to. That is, until the internet was created. And now, you can search anything, anytime, anywhere, and very soon after the internet was accessible by most people, we started using the phrase, falling down a rabbit hole, as a metaphor for digressions online in the ocean of all available knowledge. The common charge against our online habits is that they are shallow and meaningless. But in fact, rabbit holes deepen our understanding of the world around us. They reveal the sheer immensity of information available to think about and become interested in. The modern rabbit hole, unlike the original, isn't a means to an end. It's a journey that invites us ever downward, deeper and deeper, encouraging us to be curiouser and curiouser as to what we might discover next. In Celtic mythology and folklore, the hare is often linked to the supernatural and the spirit world, reached through mists, hills, lakes, ponds, wetland areas, caves, ancient burial sites, cairns and mounds, all liminal zones. The otherworldly entities that inhabit these spaces were seen as mysterious and powerful, and the hare's association with them was a warning that those who would harm a hare could suffer dire consequences. There's an old legend that the Celtic warrior, Oisin, wounded a hare in its leg while hunting. He followed the wounded hare into a thicket where he found a door leading down into the ground, which sounds very Alice in Wonderland-esque. Oisin climbed down the hole and discovered a large hall with a beautiful young woman sitting on a throne, bleeding from a leg wound. She was a shapeshifter, and represented a long tradition of hares as shapeshifters in disguise. When the Romans invaded the British Isles, Julius Caesar remarked that Celtic people did not regard it lawful to eat a hare, as one might be eating one of these shapeshifters, or worse yet, a witch. The Celtic shamans studied the patterns of hare tracks, the rituals of their mating dances, and performed divination with their entrails. The hare burrowed underground in order to better commune with the spirit world, and they could thus carry messages from the living to the dead and from humans to the fae. In fact, hair mythology exists in almost every ancient culture and religion and is most often associated with trafficking between the liminal spaces that separate this world from the spirit world, especially through holes in the ground. These recurring subterranean narratives all seem to have elements of catabasis which is the descent or trip into the underworld which is found in most religions around the world. Occultist and writer Ren Collier and I discussed his research into the narrative archetype of catapasis and its connection to the UFO phenomenon.
8: I'm Wren Collier. I'm originally from Alabama. I grew up in the South. I live in Minneapolis now, um, but I've been interested in the paranormal and UFOs and the occult since I was a kid. Started studying magic when I was a teenager and then kind of put it off for many years, but then got back into it in the sort of the mid-2010s when I discovered uh, Alan Greenfield's secret cipher, the UFOnauts, and the link between the occult and ufology, kind of my two passions as a kid, got like finally brought together. It became especially clear when I was reading Passport to Magonia for the first time, and reading about the uh testimony of a fascist card and talking about his dad i believe uh, conjuring the sylphs, and the sylphs act and talk just like uh space brothers from the contactee movement and i think i realized at that point oh if i want to meet aliens i got to learn how to summon them right I-, I can't wait for them to show up in a flying saucer i gotta i gotta give them a phone call and tell them to show up in a flying saucer so Um, that's kind of when I got more serious about my magical practice and after moving up here to Minneapolis I uh, joined the OTO up here so um, first degree member in the OTO and found a a mentor in in Scott Stenwick up here who's a member of the lodge and so just over the last couple of years my my magical practice really took off and lately I've been really interested in uh, underworld narratives and catabasis and the idea not only of of subterranean fiction and in hollow earth kind of narratives, but how those myths play into systems of, of cultural and societal control. All right, let me hop back in these questions.
1: Um, let's, uh, just a little bit about the Shaver mystery if people aren't familiar with what that is and maybe because I mean you've incorporated part of that narrative too right into your research.
8: Yeah, yeah. and it's you know it's a popular subterranean fiction created by a mentally ill man uh, named Richard Shaver. He started writing letters to um, Amazing Stories. God, what was the guy's name? Ray Ray Palmer, from who was publishing a uh, um, Amazing Stories, you know, collections of weird fiction, science uh, fiction, and fantasy stuff. Pulp magazine. He originally sent Palmer this letter about how he had been uh, he, he had been getting. Start over. He'd been tormented by these entities that he called Darrows, that he said lived underground, and they were using like like a psychic ray gun to torture him mentally and stuff. And he sort of claimed that he'd been taken underground and tortured by these beings. And Palmer took his narrative and created a a story out of it called "I Remember Lemuria" or "Warning to Future Man." Um, and published it like as a like a like a fiction story. What was interesting was after this came out, all kinds of people started writing in saying, "Oh, I've I, I was also kidnapped by the Darrow, or I know what you're talking about." And it seems like all these people came out of the woodworks who had these similar experiences with these entities. Palmer milked it for all it was worth because you know he was in the business of selling magazines, so he ran so many Shaver mystery stories, which were these stories about underground ancient civilizations and ray guns and the Darrow and the Tarot and all this kind of stuff. He ran the the whole thing into the ground, basically, to the point where people started complaining that Amazing Stories was just a shaver mystery magazine now. But ultimately, none of it's real. I mean, not real, like I say that, but I also say that everything's real. But in the sense that the Shaver mystery, the, the basic narrative of what Richard Shaver was talking about is a well-known symptom of like paranoid schizophrenics. Um in particular, uh, one famous case is called the heirloom gang.
1: I was and gonna ask you about that next
8: because I was like because <laughs> what the whole Shaver thing is so it's so that the same thing. It's the same thing. And it's and you know, it's it's a it's a common symptom of schizophrenia. Like multiple people who suffer from that have a similar idea where the idea that you even see it in modern, like gang stalking and and that kind of thing, where this whole idea that there's like a group of people who mean to do you harm who are beaming thoughts into your head with a machine or a ray or whatever. I mean, it's where the whole tinfoil hat kind of idea comes from, right? But it is interesting on this like, like hyperstitional kind of level that the fiction became reality because then all of a sudden, People came out of the woodworks claiming to have also encountered Darrow. So were they all just making that up? Were did had they actually encountered things underground? Like one guy I believe said that he had encountered these uh creatures when he was like in the war or something in like World War II. I mean, who really knows? But it became uh, a really popular, I guess, genre of pulp science fiction in the in the nineteen fifties and sixties.
1: Yeah, and and like, you know, Burroughs talks about influencing machines. Mm-hmm. You know. And I think a lot of that, uh, man. I'm telling you, I've had all these. Once the show came out, the first season, all kinds of crazy people started showing up down here in Somerset, right? Mm-hmm. And they, uh, you know, people were asking me where the fucking underground UFO bases were. Yeah. And when I was like, "There's no underground UFO base." They're like, "Fuck you! It's disinformation. You're fucking lying," no. you know. And I'm like, yeah. "God damn it!" <laughs> you know, yeah. but. But these people that were just obsessed with that and uh, people I was being contacted... We have a little bit of it in the first season, but I was being contacted by people that were remote viewers, you know, who were remote viewing all of these underground bases and people were sending me dreams they were having, uh, you know, that, that were trying to tell me in what part of the county the entrance was. And I'm like, and they don't know each other, you know, and it's just like, why is this now something in their minds? But... But right after the show came out, a strange thing that happened was that these signs appeared Mm. around town. The first one appeared outside of the bar where our studio is located. And they they said uh, the the general consensus of all the signs, I think there were a total of six signs over a two-week period that culminated with someone climbing on top of a house downtown and spray-painting the message on the roof. And it said this town is a cult call the FBI and then it mentioned a bunch of people from the podcast that I covered Um, but people that are famous here in town you know, sheriff that was assassinated one of the guys that owned the mine was spear wagon, you know, like a lot of stuff like a local lore thing and then we're like always ended it with um, this is the Truman Show none of this is real cyber terrorists have taken over right and they're really crazy signs and it's really crazy what they paint on top of the house and i've got pictures of all of these things and there were multiple people it wasn't one person witnesses saw two different men and a woman and they did it in the middle of the day. One of the in the the studio, the bar that we're above is right across the street from the sheriff's department. And this woman in the middle of the day walked up and then put this pre-prepared sign on, on outside that said this. Right. Um, so I was talking to the cops about it, and one of these police officers that I know, and he was like, "Oh no, we know who did it. It's this guy that believes there are tunnels underneath the town, and that people are pushing, uh, uh gro- you know, shopping carts." filled with microwaves and the microwaves are controlling the minds of everybody that lives here in town he's like that's fucking crazy and it's like it is crazy but it also fits this motif <laughs> that that. and it's like this person if it's who you say it is but also who they they're pointing out the witnesses say they saw are not people that were listening to the fucking podcast right yeah. you know that, and, and it's like were they somehow picking up on the story? Was it being broadcast in a way, um, yeah. or or is it just something that become it's it's now it's woven into the fabric of this place, you know? And did the like genius, you know, loci of the place, you know, the spirit of this place now has that. I don't know. It's just weird, you know, when you think of like the James Matthew Tillys. Heirloom, you know, it's, this is that same story of you know shopping carts with the microwaves and you know yeah. even even the whole James Shelby Downer thing and his you know it's always you're always persecuted. Yeah, you know? it's a persecution thing. Yeah, yeah, which is it's just really fascinating. Just the fact that so many of these things have involved subterranean elements is is always fascinating to me. You know, um,
8: I was I was blown away when I was doing research into subterranean fiction. And I actually found, uh, it was in the list of, on Wikipedia, just, you know, lists of subterranean fictions and stuff. And there was a novel in the 18, late 1800s um, about two brothers who were inventors who build an anti-gravity airship and travel into the hollow earth. And I was like, that sounds kind of familiar. <laughs> anti-gravity airships? Pretty strange. What year was that? Um, I had to look
1: it up real quick. Let me see. That's That's really interesting to... Yeah, the whole airship thing, (laughs) you know, also, you know, there's this whole idea of of the way that that the UFO phenomena always mirrors what is sort of the furthest thing that a society's collective consciousness can imagine. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, we can't really go past Tic Tacs right now, you Mm -hmm. know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> we couldn't imagine something, you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I just, it's always like the airships or, you know, in the 30s, you know, 40s, 50s, everything sort of matched,
6: mm.
8: matched up, you know. So here you go. So just, you can count off little dings of how many, like, check check boxes this ticks off. Charles Willing-Bill's 1899 novel, The Secret of the Earth, tells of the adventure of two brothers who build an anti-gravity airship and travel to the Hollow Earth. There they find several lost races and learn that mankind originated in the Hollow Earth, but the unruly types were exiled from, uh, from the inside. Then they exit via the South Pole opening and crash on an island in the South Pacific from which they send off a log of, adventure, of their adventures that forms the novel. But it's like, you've got the South Pole, Hollow Earth thing. You've got an anti-gravity airship. You've got sort of a, uh, you know, lost Lemuria, lost Atlantis kind of idea of humans originating from the Hollow Earth and everything. It's... Catavisus. Catavisus. Yeah, so it's the idea uh, that the word is Greek and literally means like trip to the shore or like trip to the ocean. But the idea is uh, it's a type of narrative in which a hero figure... Our heroine figure, uh, travels into the underworld, right, uh, in order to rescue someone, to gain knowledge, to uh, steal something. And uh, a true catabasis is an excursion into the underworld and an escape back to the surface, a successful escape back to the surface. And so a lot of these narratives aren't successful, like the story of, of Orpheus, who travels into the underworld to rescue his his dead lover Eurydice he's told that you know he can take her back to the upper world but he cannot um like look back at her while he's ascending uh, he does and he's she's lost to him forever and then later you know he sort of founds what we know now as like the orphic mysteries which are all about kind of descent, like the Eleusinian mysteries are about sort of a descendant in a world. The, the rituals are carried out inside of caves and subterranean systems. But the idea of failed catabasis is, is, is something too. Um, but this narrative, mythology of it is, is as old as we have stories. I mean, you have examples in almost every culture of this type of story. Um, and like in uh, Sumerian culture, you have uh, Ishtar's descent into the underworld. Wow, where she goes to rescue her her male lover, uh, husband, I believe, Dumuzid. It's very similar to almost like a like a Hades and Persephone kind of story. Like she can uh, Dumuzid can come back to the service with her, but uh, she can only like he can only stay like half the year or whatever, and that's what creates the seasons. Is her having to go back into the underworld? But one thing that really interested me when I was when I was reading these narratives uh, was the idea of like the concept of descent and initiation and bringing back of like hidden knowledge, right? Because it sounds to me a lot like the process of crossing the abyss in magic, right? This idea that you have to travel through an immense darkness in order to discover truth, um, but that it's dangerous and that if you fail, you can be sort of lost in that forever. I kind of got into subterranean fiction so there was like a, it was an extremely popular genre. I mean, a lot of people are probably familiar with like Jules Verne, like Journey to the Center of the Earth. Uh, but in the late 1800s, I mean, there's a whole series of novels by by different authors. Like there's uh, Vril or The Coming Race, subterranean fiction. You can go on Wikipedia and there's a whole list of all these different books that, if you're interested in, in looking them up. But people who've watched Hellier are probably more familiar with that Adorba, which is um, also like a subterranean narrative. I think what was really fascinating to me was seeing how this mythology, especially the the real stuff by um, Bulwer-Lytton, ended up becoming part of the mythology of theosophy and then later um, Volkish movements in sort of pre-Nazi Germany, um, which led to German mystics trying to find Agartha in Tibet, you know, a, a completely fictional place. It never existed except in the imagination of an, of an you know, Edward Bulwer-Lytton, uh, an author. And then seeing how that narrative gets translated after the war into uh, like Nazi UFO bases under the Antarctic and uh, underground submarine bases and that sort of, which were probably somewhat based in reality. And then in the early nineties, which was sort of the conspiracy culture that I grew up in, you have the mythos of the deep underground military base, where instead of there being underground, you know, military bases full of Nazi UFOs, there it's full of reptilians and Greys. Like you have the the Dulcie base mythos, where there's this uh joint human alien, you know, cooperative base under the archuleta Mesa. And you have people like Phil Schneider who come out and tell these stories about getting into firefights with greys in, in the tunnels beneath Dulcie Base and stuff. I think it really piqued my interest when I when I got into the Hellier stuff, because I, I remembered in The Secret Side for the Uphanauts, Terry Riss story about getting into a firefight with Darrow in the tunnels under Tallulah Gorge in Georgia, and... That set me on a, a sort of weird tangent where I was like, I know all the stories about the deep underground military bases and, and Dulce and stuff. These are all fictions. These these never existed. These were created by Air Force OSI as part of a disinfo operation they were running against Paul Benowitz. Uh, which, if people aren't familiar with, go read Project Beta by Greg Bishop or watch the documentary Mirage Man to get a better idea of that story. So it made me think: like, was there a group of people, or was there a concerted effort, maybe in the in the in the early nineties? maybe late 80s, late 80s, early 90s, to spread these underground narratives into conspiracy culture, you know, into people who were interested in UFOs. Like, was Terry Rist a disinfo agent? Was he instructed to tell Alan Greenfield this story because it was part of some plan, some greater narrative? And the last year has been me trying to speculate on, like, what the purpose of that could be. Like, well, why is it important uh, to some people that we believe that there are monsters that live underground. You know, regardless of whether or not that's true, it seems to be an important myth, and, and is that myth inserted into our culture to guide it in a specific direction?
1: We've had quite a few wild-eyed researchers of the strange show up in Somerset with psychic impressions and synchronicities that led them to believe that there's an underground secret base of some sort beneath Pulaski County. Honestly, because of the karst landscape, the Pennyroyal is a prime candidate for tunneling and constructing an underground installation. The rock is soft and porous and easy to dig through, and there already exists a vast system of caves and caverns, the largest in the world. Prime real estate for a secret underground bunker. But again, I don't personally think this is the case. I think that this belief is another example of the influence that Synergy has had on the occult to produce the belief in an underground secret elite. Even the story that I heard when I first arrived in Somerset and began this investigation, that story included a dark cult run by a powerful and secretive local elite, was another narrative that fit the synarchic mold. Sometimes these narratives emerge spontaneously, but often... They're introduced into a group or society with purpose. These are literally underground, subterranean narratives constructed with a specific goal. And this is where the subterranean narrative of the secret chiefs, the shadow government, the deep state, and all of this Q bullshit really comes from. These are underground memes designed to seek out and infect fringe groups who are subjugated and marginalized. Synarchy is a belief in a secret elite is a form of psychological and political warfare. The underground archetype that Adam Go-Rightly, Wren Collier, and other researchers have identified in the UFO community was designed as a form of disinformation and a psychological warfare tactic targeting the occult and paranormal communities. There's a clear genealogy of where this narrative began, how it passed through the centuries into theosophy and other occult movements, and from there directly into the UFO community by way of designated actors and agents, we can only speculate at its true purpose. This subterranean narrative also hints at an undercurrent of fascism that subtly surfaced in fringe occult and paranormal groups in the 1970s and 1980s, laying the groundwork for a political shift in these communities that would occur gradually as fascism was cloaked in esotericism and synchro mysticism. And now, Decades later, we're all on a strange trip through what Dwight D. Eisenhower referred to as Darkest America. Penny Royal is written and produced by your host, Nathan Paul Isaac. Associate producers are Darian West and Kyle Cadell. Original musical score by Philip Claunch edited and mixed by Boone Williams, sponsored by Jarfly Brewing Company and the International Paranormal Museum and Research Center. If you're interested in joining the investigation and diving deeper into the story, visit pennyroyalpodcast.com and support the show by becoming a member of the Liminal Lodge. Thanks for listening, and keep digging.